and welcome to History of the Uchmer, episode 2.19. What just happened? A bit of a mid-season recap. Now, funnily enough, my original plan for this episode lined up with some of the questions you guys had. Uh, Robert, Judson, and two anonymous listeners wanted a timeline of when each army left and arrived. Actually, that was the most common question I got. And that was my initial plan. I'm glad we're on the same wavelength, folks. So, we're going to go over the sequential order of basically the whole season thus far, and then get into some other questions you guys had. So, we'll start in 1094, and get a timeline of events up until June of 1097. It's really shocking how quick things moved in this three-year period. In March of 1094, Pope Urban II finished a papal tour of Italy and France. He finally had enough support to get out of southern Italy without fearing capture by the German emperor. During the council, which was held over a week, the emperor's current wife, Eupraxia of Kiev, and his son by his previous wife, Conrad, that's his son's name, not his wife's name, well, anyway, they denounced Henry as a depraved sexual abuser. And Urban also met with delegates sent from the Byzantine emperor, Alexios Komdinos, who wanted his help. One point I don't know if I highlighted back in episode 2.5 when we covered this originally was that Alexios had previously allied with Henry IV against Pope Gregory VII. That alliance had been forged out of necessity and convenience, but it's still interesting that Alexios went to the Pope and not Henry for help. Although, who knows if he also went to Henry. Anyway, Urban then began planning whatever he thought the crusade was going to be. At some point over the following 20 months, he contacted various nobles and bishops. He probably started making concrete arrangements around August of 1095. We know for certain that he had to have contacted Raymond of Saint-Gilles, for a reason I'll get into in a bit. But there's also a chance he was in touch with Bowman of Tarento, maybe indirectly via Roger Borsa, and Godfrey of Bouillon, also maybe indirectly via abbots in Lorraine who we know corresponded with Urban and had received indirect support from Godfrey just two years earlier. Godfrey's maternal uncle and grandfather, from whom he'd received his lands in Lorraine, were closely connected to the Reform Papacy in their day. The Reform Papacy had also been connected to William the Bastard's invasion of England in 1066, actually two years before Urban had been ordained, but there might have been some means of communication between him and those related to the now-deceased William such as his son, Robert Curthose, and his son-in-law, Stephen of Blois, as well as the sons of one of William's most important supporters, Eustace II of Boulogne, Godfrey of Bouillon, and Baldwin of Boulogne. The following year, in November of 1095, Pope Urban held the Council of Clermont. He discussed various church reforms, extended the excommunication of Philip I, King of France, who had illegally, according to the church, repudiated his first wife, and shacked up with the Count of Anjou's wife, Bertrade de Montfort. Have I mentioned that Bertrade's children will become Outremer rulers? Yeah, so her son with the Count of Anjou will marry his way into the role of King of Jerusalem, and her daughter with the King of France will marry Tancred, Bowman's nephew. Tancred will later, basically from his deathbed, arrange her marriage to Pons of Tripoli, Raymond of Saint-Gilles' son. Actually, another of Philip I's daughters, Constance, from his previous marriage, will marry Bohemon, and their son, Bohemon II, obviously, will later become Prince of Antioch. Just a little sneak peek at what we'll be covering in the future. 
Anyway, so apart from excommunicating Philip, on the last day of the council, November 27th, Urban also made an appeal to the knightly aristocratic class. What exactly he said is covered in episode 2.6, but basically he wanted to go help the Byzantine Roman Emperor and also liberate Jerusalem. He offered remission of sins for participants. A few people signed up on the spot, including Ademar, the Bishop of Lepuy, who Urban designated as the papal legate, basically the church's representative during the expedition. The day after he made this speech, November 28th, a representative from Raymond of saint arrived to confirm that Raymond would also be going. This is the most direct evidence that Raymond already knew about this whole thing, because there would have been no way for him to learn about the speech and send a messenger in just under 24 hours. Ademar and Raymond would later travel together. So, then Urban went on a winter tour of France, and throughout, multiple folks also confirmed their participation. The whole thing seems to have been explosively popular. When news reached Paris of all this, the King of France seems to have either asked or ordered his brother Hugh, the Count of Vermandois, to participate. He also made moves to drop his new lady and go back to his old one, so as to get his excommunication lifted. Hugh confirmed his participation at some point in February of the following year, 1096. Other northern Frenchmen and northern West Germans like Stephen of Blois, Robert Kurthose, Robert Count of Flanders, and Godfrey Bouillon seem to have also confirmed their participation around this time. Our best source for these dates are actually the financial documents of future crusaders, mortgaging property to church officials. For example, on the 12th of April, a shard of Montmerle pledged his holdings to the Abbey of Cluny in return for 2,000 Lyon shillings and four mules, so that he could take, quote, the journey to Jerusalem to fight for God against pagans and Saracens. Ashar would actually die on this expedition, by the way, in June of 1099 outside the city of Jaffa, and the Abbey of Cluny would get to keep his property. Good business for the Abbey of Cluny. Anyway, documents of this sort are how we place the confirmation dates of most crusaders. Now, the Pope had fixed the departure date for the 15th of August of 1096, roughly nine months after his speech at Clermont. But on the same day Ashar was striking a deal with the Abbey of Cluny, April 12th, an itinerant preacher by the name of Peter entered the town of Cologne, Germany. Peter already had a sizable following of Frenchmen who had committed themselves to an armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem by way of Constantinople. He must have started recruiting in the winter as well, and they had set out at some point in March. The connections to Urban's plan are unclear. But even if Peter's pilgrimage had started out independent from the papal call to arms, the two expeditions became fused in the popular consciousness. And when Urban wrote a letter that year to Alexios, he included Peter as the head of one of the armies that had responded to the summons at Clermont. Peter spent about a week in Cologne, and by the time he left, he was at the head of perhaps as many as 20,000 people. In the Rhineland, he seems to have set up a little multi-level marketing scheme, and two other preachers soon began spreading news of his planned pilgrimage throughout Germany. These were Gottschalk and Folkmar. Numerous other armed forces began to coalesce around the same time. Notably, there was one led by Emiko, Count of Flonheim. Maybe. His identity is actually a bit hard to pin down. But Count of Flonheim is as good a guess as any. Now, at Trier, Peter the Hermit showed a letter to the Jewish community of the city. It basically said that French Jewish communities had agreed to ensure Jewish assistance for Peter in return for peace from Peter's forces. Basically a mafia-style protection racket. Those are some nice lives you got there. 
be a shame if we just straight up butchered all of you. We do not have any direct evidence from French Jewish communities, but in spring of 1096, anti-Jewish violence reached a fever pitch in Germany. Around this time, Godfrey of Bouillon decided to extort the Jewish community of Cologne in a similar fashion. He received 1,000 zekukim, silver pieces, from them, despite the ban on attacks against Jewish communities, which was reiterated by Godfrey's liege, Henry IV, who was in Italy, trying to do damage control after the Council of Piacenza, two years earlier. A month later, on May 3rd, 1096, Count Emico is reported to have attacked the Jewish community of the city of Speyer and killed 12 people. Five days later, on May 8th, Peter the Hermit's advance guard, under a noble named Walter Sansevoir, arrived at the Hungarian border. Ten days after that, on May 18th, in the city of Worms, Count Emico's forces massacred nearly the entire Jewish population, around 800 people. Five days later, on the opposite side of Germany, in the city of Regensburg, in Bavaria, Peter's forces organized a forced baptism of the city's Jews in the River Danube. And four days after that, on May 27th, Emiko's men murdered 1,100 Jews at Mainz. He then traveled north towards Cologne, the opposite direction from Jerusalem. By the end of May, Walter had reached the Byzantine Empire, and he would arrive at Constantinople on June 20th, 1096, after getting into some light skirmishes with some imperial forces. Meanwhile, Peter the Hermit's larger army arrived in Hungary. In the second week of June, right around the time Walter was arriving at Constantinople, Peter's forces sacked Zemun, killing about 4,000 Hungarians, according to the sources. Probably an inflated number, but they still killed a whole lot of folks. Around the same time, Gottschalk and Folkmar were persecuting Jews. Gottschalk's army was attacking the Jewish communities of Bavaria, while Folkmar's army was massacring Jews in Prague. Between May and June, at least 4,000 and perhaps more than 8,000 Jews were killed or committed suicide in the face of persecution. After sacking Zemun, Peter's army moved on to Belgrade, which had been deserted, and so it was much easier for them to loot it. They then headed towards Nish, arriving there on June 27th. They resupplied, but decided to attack the city anyway, and then scattered when the city guard attacked them. Around three days later, on June 30th, Folkmar arrived at Nitra, then a part of the Kingdom of Hungary, and his forces were crushed by the locals. And meanwhile, Gottschalk's forces began pillaging the area around Moshon on the Hungarian border. Considering what had just happened at Zemun and Nitra, King Kalman then lured Gottschalk's army to the perfect spot, tricked them into giving up their weapons, and slaughtered them. Now, Emiko. He'd headed north to Cologne at the end of May, but he'd been unable to kill many Jews there. A chunk of his army under William the Carpenter headed into France in search of more victims, but Emiko finally headed towards Hungary. In early July, his army arrived at Moshon. They attempted to besiege the town, and were then scattered by King Kalman's forces, presumably coming back from slaughtering Gottschalk's forces. The survivors from Folkmar's, Gottschalk's, and Emiko's armies began to stream back towards Germany. Meanwhile, Peter's army was able to regroup, and they continued towards Sofia, the modern capital of Bulgaria. They arrived there on July 7th and then proceeded to Constantinople, under the watchful eye of an imperial escort. They arrived at Constantinople on the 1st of August, 1096, about five months after Peter had started out for the crusade, in March. In that time, in those five months, his army and those inspired by him had caused the death of thousands of German Jews, Hungarians, and residents of the Byzantine Roman Empire, not to mention their own deaths. Good job so far, guys. The emperor quickly had them all transported across to Anatolia. 
It was soon August 15th, the date Pope Urban had set for the departure, and now the great lords, quote-unquote, began their pilgrimages. Perhaps on the very same day Urban had set, Godfrey of Bouillon departed from Lorraine. He took the same route Peter and the other armies of the Peasants' Crusade had, and as he went, he absorbed many of the returning pilgrims and knights from Folkmark, Scott Schalks, and Emigo's armies, who had been turned back from Hungary just a few weeks earlier. Around the same time, Hugh of Vermandois sent a letter to the Roman Emperor, and set out. He traveled south through France, and soon ran into the forces under William the Carpenter, who had split off from Count Emigo at Cologne and traveled into France, where they had presumably spent about two months trying to kill as many Jews as they could get their hands on. Either because they'd had their fill of Jewish blood, or because they'd been unsuccessful, we don't have any records, they decided to join up with Hugh of Vermandois, and they traveled south with him towards Italy. So even if we're no longer talking about men like Emiko, we have to remember that the armies that carried out the Jewish pogroms of 1096 were absorbed into the quote-unquote noble armies of the First Crusade. They didn't just disappear. Hugh continued south through Italy, passing by Amalfi. Some of his men were questioned by the brother of the Duke of Apulia and Calabria, Bohemond. Bohemond made a show of taking the cross in front of the entire army besieging the rebellious city of Amalfi, and many of the knights there followed his example. The siege dissipated, as the men began to join up under Bohemond instead. In late September, early October, the combined armies of the northern French lords, Robert Curhoes, Duke of Normandy, Stephen Henry, Count of Blois, and Robert II, Count of Flanders, departed. Around the same time, Hugh crossed the Adriatic, and after a storm at sea, he arrived at Durachion, modern Duras, in Albania. In Anatolia, Peter the Hermit's forces were raiding the Byzantine towns and cities that had fallen under the control of the Sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan. Kilij set up a few ambushes, and finally took their main cap at Civitat on the 21st of October, killing most of the Peasants' Crusade, and scattering the rest. Around the same time, just two weeks after Hugh, Bohemond also arrived in the Balkans, and began a meandering route through the region. In late October 1096, Raymond of Saint-Gy, who had agreed to the endeavor about 14 months earlier, finally departed, accompanied by the papal legate, Ademar. Interestingly, his was probably the only main army to leave after the massacre at Civitant, and they definitely left before word of it had trickled back to Europe. Raymond's army made their way east from southern France, through northern Italy, taking the land route, because it would have been winter when they arrived in southern Italy, and the crossing over the Adriatic was dangerous. He must have just missed the northern French army traveling south. Stephen and the two Roberts met Pope Urban at Lucca in late October, and arrived in Bari around early November. Robert Curthoes and Stephen of Blois hung back. But Robert, Count of Flanders, attempted the crossing, got into a naval skirmish with the Byzantines, and was then basically captured and transported to Constantinople. It's unclear when exactly he arrived, but he was probably neutralized in much the same way Hugh of Vermontois had been. Speaking of Hugh, he arrived at Constantinople at the same time in early November, again just two weeks after the massacre at Civitant. He was placed in comfortable house arrest and agreed to take an oath of fealty to Alexios Komnenos. Meanwhile, Godfrey Bouillon, who'd been able to negotiate safe passage through Hungary, arrived at Belgrade, again, following the footsteps of the now decimated Peasants' Crusade. As Godfrey traveled to Constantinople, he apparently received word that Hugh was in the capital and under guard. He then used this as justification for raiding at Silivri, just a few miles from Constantinople. Alexio sent envoys to calm the situation, and the army then agreed to move closer to Constantinople and be housed in a northern suburb. They arrived there just two days before Christmas, 1096. Still, 
Godfrey refused to enter the city and visit with the emperor. In response, Alexius began to cut off supplies from Godfrey's forces. The new year came and went. On January 13, 1097, elements of Godfrey's army, under his brother Baldwin, destroyed the suburb they were staying in, and then marched on Constantinople. Around the same time, Raymond of Saint-Gy also entered Byzantine territory, near Dyrrhachion. His army had had a long and difficult journey through Slavonia. They did not receive a warm welcome in the Byzantine Empire either. Soon they were raiding to supply themselves as they traveled through the very same lands Bohemond had been haunting for a few months now. Around this time, on January 20th, 1097, Godfrey also received envoys from Bohemond of Tarento, who was hanging out in the southern Balkans. Bohemond seems to have wanted to team up against the Romans. Still, Godfrey agreed to meet with the emperor in return for a highly valuable hostage, the emperor's son and heir apparent, Ioannis. He turned Bohemond down and swore an oath to Alexios. This seems to have led to a change in Bohemond's tactics, and he hurried to the capital. Meanwhile, Alexios arranged for the forces under Godfrey, and presumably Hugh of Vermandois, as well as perhaps Robert of Flanders, to be shipped across the Bosporus to Anatolia. He housed them at a fortress known as Pelicanum, not far from Chalcedon. All of this today is part of the Asian portion of the city of Istanbul, so it was obviously very reachable from Constantinople. Presumably, the remnants of the Peasants' Crusade were housed alongside the newcomers, and maybe their experiences convinced Godfrey and Hugh's men to lay low, because we don't hear much from them during this period. Other small forces continued to arrive at Constantinople, and when they did, Alexis made sure they swore oaths to him in front of previous arrivals, like Godfrey and his brother Baldwin. This is the period of time in which the incident involving Alexis' throne happened, the one I recounted at the end of our last episode. During this time, Bohemond made his way to Constantinople. Raymond's army was just behind him. As I mentioned, Raymond's army had frequent scraps with the locals, and the imperial forces escorting them, mostly Pechenegg horse archers. The papal legate, Ademar of Lepuy, was injured in one of these, and had to stay at Thessaloniki in modern Greece to recuperate from his injuries. Raymond's army also sacked the Byzantine city of Rusa, modern Keshan, near Edirna in Turkey. In early April, Stephen of Blois and Robert Kurhos departed from southern Italy. They ran into storms and floods, but made decently good time as they approached Constantinople. Now, on April 9th, Bowman of Tarento arrived at Constantinople, and while his army hung out outside the city, he entered and also took his oath of fealty. But, after hearing what Alexios wanted, his lieutenant Tancred arranged for a secret crossing of the Bosporus and did not meet with Alexios. We'll come back to Tancred soon enough. The very next day after Tancred crossed the Bosporus, Raymond of Toulouse arrived at Constantinople. A long, protracted negotiation took place. Raymond was angry when he heard his army had been scattered by the emperor's forces and demanded satisfaction. The emperor handed over Bohemond, still hanging out at the capital, as a hostage. Some sort of trial took place and found in the emperor's favor, but still, Raymond refused to do the emperor homage. Bohemond, Godfrey, and Robert, Count of Flanders, are all recorded as having tried to convince him to do so, but to no avail. Eventually, on April 26th, Raymond swore an oath of fealty, but did not do the emperor homage. By this point, Ademar of Lepuy had also arrived. All of these political events, by the way, can be interpreted in many ways, and for a deep dive into the varying timelines, including Anna's very different timeline for Godfrey's attack on Constantinople, see episode 2.17 and 2.18.
Now we're getting into some events that we haven't quite covered. On the same day Raymond swore his oath, April 26, 1097, Godfrey of Bouillon, with his army, left their Anatolian camp at Pelcanum and began the short trip to Nicaea, the de facto capital of the Sultanate of Rome. They stopped at Nicomedia, the last Byzantine stronghold in the region, where, three days later, they were joined by Bohemond's forces, being led by Tancred, as Bohemond was still back in Constantinople. Peter the Hermit also joined up with them, gotta keep that guy around, he's such good luck. And presumably, Hugh of Vermandois and Robert of Flanders also joined them. At the same time, Raymond led his army across the Bosporus, and then perhaps returned to spend 15 days hanging out with Alexios. On May 6th, the combined forces of Godfrey, Tancred, and the Peasants' Crusade arrived at Nicaea, where they began setting up a siege. They were aided by a small group of Byzantine engineers under the command of the emperor's main man, Manuel Butumitis. The engineers got to work constructing siege engines. Godfrey set himself up on the north side of the city, and Tancred on the eastern side. About a week later, around May 14th, Bohemond rejoined Tancred and his army. On that same day, Stephen of Blois and Robert Curthose arrived at Constantinople. They swore their oaths, apparently with no difficulty, and did homage, again apparently with no difficulty, and were then immediately ferried over the Bosporus to Anatolia. On May 16th, Raymond of Toulouse's army arrived at Nicaea and set up on the southern side of the city. Two weeks later, on June 3, 1097, Stephen of Blois and Robert Curthose arrived. The true siege of Nicaea had begun. It had been over three years since Byzantine legates had arrived at Piacenza in March of 1094. Twenty months after Pope Urban's speech at Claremont in November of 1096. Fifteen months since the first armies under Peter the Hermit had begun to travel eastwards in March of 1096. And ten months since Pope Urban's planned departure date of August 15, 1096. The armies of the First Crusade, as we understand it today, had left Europe and entered Asia. Though they hadn't conquered any lands yet, they were now truly Outremer, beyond the sea. Alright now, let's get to questions. A handful of you sent in some questions, a few wanted the timeline I just gave, so that's that taken care of, but there were a few other questions. First up is Judson. Judson has a few questions, all very good, and I think I can answer all of them. One of them was about the timeline, so that's one down. Judson asks, what was Alexios physically doing when Crusader armies started showing up outside Constantinople? Specifically, I'm wondering if any sources mention what he was doing or where exactly he was during the Godfrey of Bouillon episode. Did he ever leave the palace and head to the Theodosian walls to personally try to meet with Godfrey in order to try and stop the madness that was taking place? Like, explain in person to him that no, he wasn't trying to poison him or kill Hugh of Vermandois? So, Anna actually does give us an idea of what he was up to. According to her, he stayed at the palace probably the Blachernai Palace, which would have been right at the edge of town, where the Franks were trying to break through. After explaining how the attack started, she says that everyone in Constantinople, which she refers to as Byzantium in this section, went crazy with fear. She calls them the vulgar mob of Byzantines. This is where she mentions that it was the anniversary of Alexis's coup. Then she says, quote, All the trained soldiers hurried to the palace in disorder, but the emperor remained calm. There was no attempt to arm, no buckling on of scaled cuirass, no shield, no spear in hand, no girding on of his sword. He sat firmly on the imperial throne, gazing cheerfully on them, encouraging and inspiring the hearts of all with confidence, while he took counsel with his kinsmen and generals about future action. End quote. But yeah, 
Anna says basically Alexios was just hanging out, and the Latin sources always indicate he was speaking through envoys. Another question is, can you talk a bit more about the state of the union that was France on the eve of the Crusades? How tied together were these various duchies and counties? Was the Duke of Aquitaine or Toulouse or Anjou essentially a king in all but name? How much control did Philip have over them, if any? How did he try to maintain control over them? France. France was a mess. We really can't call it a kingdom or even a state at this point. It was definitely not united in any way. This was an era dominated by two main political factors. One, the politics of land. Whoever owned the land was the ultimate authority there. The Carolingian offices and rights to taxation had become hereditary properties and were little more than makeup painted on the face of military extortion. Local lords did whatever they wanted to in their scrap of land. The second element was personal politics. France, in particular, had lost the early medieval tradition of assemblies or Roman concepts of hierarchy. In the 11th century, kings were forced to individually work out a deal with each subordinate. Chris Wickham calls this a cellular structure. It would eventually be knitted back together into something more autocratic, but built on the basis of local hierarchies. And the king of France was really competing with other random lords for the role of supreme ruler. There was still some reverence for the title, and you sometimes find the king being used as an arbiter of sorts between personal feuds. But in reality, he was just one more player in French politics. He ruled Ile-de-France, basically the area around Paris, and that's it. In terms of real power, definitely Raymond of Saint-Gilles has as much a right to the title of king as Philip, and William Rufus, king of England, who, even if his brother had technically gotten Normandy, was still super involved in French politics, he outstripped them all. Another question, can you talk about Norman Italy a little? In 1095, what was the demographic makeup, the religious and social makeup? How much of a boss was Roger of Sicily? So, specifics are going to be difficult. There are probably tons of possible answers. If you want to see a medieval historian sweat, just ask them for specific population numbers. But in 1095, Norman Italy was really diverse. Towards the north, you could find tons of people who would have called themselves Lombards. They would have spoken a Romance language. Not Italian, really, though. Italian is a conlang invented by early modern Tuscans. And I'm only half joking. But the main basis of standard Italian is the Romance language of Tuscany. In other regions, other Romance languages had developed independently, much as in Gaul or Iberia. These languages still survive in parts of Italy, but standard Italian has wiped them out to a really great extent. As you go farther south, there's more Byzantine influence. Romance languages are probably the most common throughout the peninsula and on Sicily, as evidenced by the fact that these languages are still spoken now, but Greek also had a presence especially in urban areas that had been more closely connected to the Romans in the south. The sources call these people Greeks, in fact. There are still very Hellenic communities scattered throughout southern Italy. They speak Greek dialects. I believe the Calabrian variety is called Greco, and the Apulian variety is called Grico. These are descended primarily from medieval Greek, and they're only partially intelligible for modern Greek speakers from Greece. A good comparison would probably be Scots. Look up a video in Scots if you're an English speaker for an idea. Now, religiously, while Lombards towards the north tended to be what we would call Catholic, they followed the Latin rite, you could find a lot more of what we would call Greek Orthodox believers in the south and on Sicily. But these aren't really identities that would have made sense to Christians of the era. To them, they were all Catholic, universal, and Orthodox of the right opinion. 
and in this contact region there was likely a good degree of syncretism, mixing traditions, though the rites used, such as the Latin rite or the Byzantine rite, could still be markers of affiliation, even political affiliation, to the Pope or the Roman Emperor. And of course, there were the Muslims. Muslim rule had been strongest in Sicily and Malta, so that's where you find communities of Arabic speakers and large groups of Muslims. Though quarters for Muslim and Jewish merchants from Egypt and the Levant were common throughout the region. The Arabic of this region is known as Sicilian Arabic or Siculo Arabic, and it would become a court language of the Kingdom of Sicily and hold on until around the 13th century. It was likely limited to the elites though, both the Muslim elites before the Normans and then their Norman rulers and advisors. So, it had very little influence on Sicilian, which remained the main language until the unification of Italy in the modern era. Eventually, Sicilian Arabic speakers would convert to Catholicism, and when the kingdom fell under the dominion of the Kingdom of Aragon, Catalan became the main court language. But Sicilian Arabic lives on. Its sole descendant is Maltese, the only Semitic language native to Europe. Maltese is very interesting. It absorbed a lot of Romance influence, but it's still very similar to the varieties of Arabic spoken in Tunisia, where the Muslim conquerors of the region had come from. Actually, Malta ties into your question about Roger of Sicily, because an almost certainly untrue story says that he created the Maltese flag when in 1090, he tore off a part of a red and white cross flag, leaving two bars of white and red. That's what the flag of Malta looks like. And Roger was indeed a boss, a psychopath like his brother, obviously, but he had a bit more vision and uh, a, more of an ability to build a, I don't want to say a state, but some sort of, you know, political foundation and incorporating in, you know, the, the elements of Greek rule and Muslim rule that were already there. His son, though, Roger, king of Sicily, was even more of a boss, and we will be talking about him in the future. We are coming back to southern Italy eventually. It ties into the history of the Utremer moving forward. Another question here, give me your top 5 or 10 most powerful kingdoms and or rulers in Greater Europe in 1095. This is a tough question. This order and my ranking is kind of just arbitrary, just going based on what first comes to mind. Considering, you know, the absolutism of rule and uh, the coherence of the state. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the Kingdom of England. William the Conqueror was ruthless, and he basically dispossessed almost the entirety of the Anglo-Saxon nobility. Then, he handed out lands at his will. He also strengthened slavery in England. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to live there, but those early Anglo-Norman kings had a very powerful state. Number two would probably be the realm of Alfonso VI, who was king of León, Castile, and Galicia. He actually held two other titles, Emperor of Spain, which was a Visigothic vestige, and Alimbratur du Imilatain, Emperor of the Two Religions. Alimbratur is just the Arabic translation of emperor. The two religions being Christianity and Islam. Now, the historiosity of this title has been questioned, but it is clear that Alfonso ruled over a realm that blended Christian, Islamic, and Jewish influences. The capital, Toledo, that Alfonso himself captured, became a huge center of learning, and Jewish and Muslim scholars flocked there. A lot of them, even the Muslims, were fleeing the Almoravids, a harsh, conservative Muslim power that had invaded the peninsula from Morocco. 
The Spanish language that we know today, Castilian really, would actually be formed out of all of these influences in Toledo. So I have to give Alfonso props for not only building this state, but for seeing the value and the diversity of medieval Spain. If the Uchimer had ever had any rulers like Alfonso last a bit longer, maybe those states too would have lasted a bit longer. In that same line of thinking, number three would maybe be the Kingdom of Sicily. So that actually doesn't exist yet. It wouldn't be formally created until 1130, and the first king, Roger II of Sicily, had just been born in 1095. But the county of Sicily was already a coherent polity that would be the foundation of my personal favorite medieval kingdom. Number four, the Republic of Genoa, I guess? This is maybe just based off of all the documents we have from the era that show how much they were innovating with mercantile and political policy. There's actually a lot of interesting Italian city-states at this time. Number five, um, I guess it's kind of leaving Europe, but maybe the Byzantine Roman Empire or the Fatimid Caliphate? I think Alexios did a really good job of making the Roman state coherent once more, and I feel the same way about Badr al-Jamali. Actually, the military aristocracy Badr al-Jamali brought to Egypt would survive for centuries. He really laid the groundwork for Saladin and his Aglabid dynasty, as well as the Mamluks later on. Now the question is, how were the various crusader leaders chosen? Was it by design or sort of ad hoc? Like, did the Pope recommend certain leaders or what? And once the armies were formed, how much did each army know of the other's whereabouts on their journeys? Yeah, it does seem to have been very ad hoc. The Pope likely reached out to a few people, like I said a bit earlier, but we don't have direct evidence of this. We can speculate, though. Raymond almost certainly discussed the pilgrimage with the Pope, probably in August. Hugh of Vermantois is another possibility because of the, you know, his taking of the cross lined up with his brother, the King of France's attempts to get unexcommunicated. Bohemond was basically a papal vassal. William the Conqueror had had very close ties with the Reform Papacy, and the two Roberts, Stephen of Blois and Godfrey, were all part of a very northern French-style group that seems to still have had those ties to Urban. The various armies seem to have had some vague information of where the other ones were. The Pope wrote a letter in 1096 that listed all of them, so it might have been through papal channels that they learned about each other, but Bohemond also seems to have reached out to Godfrey of Bouillon directly, and he might have had contacts in the Byzantine court updating him. Judson's last question is, talk about the pros and cons of each route to Constantinople. And Lindsay has a similar question, what was the best route to Constantinople? So, I'd say any sea route seems to have been the least disruptive. Now, we'll get into it in a bit, but there are some naval forces that left around July of 1097 from Genoa, and they just went everywhere by ship. Definitely the easiest and fastest way to get around, and not have to sack random cities. Though the Italians did often sack random cities anyway. It was also expensive though, so that's probably why we have so many land trips. It might have also been the influence of pilgrimage, as going by land was more difficult and led to more suffering, and better cleanse your soul, I guess. Now, going down to Bari and crossing over to Dyrrhachium seems like a good compromise. I think it's just coincidence that both Hugh of Vermandois and Stephen and Kurthos' fleets ran into storms. The pilgrimage route, on the other hand, was total insanity and comparatively a bloodbath, both for the Peasants' Crusade and for Godfrey. Same thing goes for Raymond's route through Slavonia. Yeah, going by boat was definitely the best idea. Then I have an anonymous question via the website actually. How did the armies of the First Crusade communicate with each other? Did they use Latin or Greek? Yeah, we're going to have a whole episode about the languages, but the most official languages were Latin and Greek to communicate with the Romans. 
However, most elements of the army were not fluent in either of these languages, and they communicated in vernaculars. Those who spoke the various dialects of Old French had an easier go of it, but for those who spoke other Romance languages, like the Provençals or the Lombards, it was a bit tougher. They likely had to use interpreters in many cases, usually members of the clergy. And the German speakers? I have no idea what they did. They probably had to find someone who spoke Old French. Godfrey of Bouillon was probably bilingual in some sort of Germanic language and Old French. Um, or maybe they could use Latin interpreters. Alexios was almost certainly a monolingual Greek speaker, so he probably used Latin interpreters to communicate. However, he seems to have also had Old French interpreters. For example, he had an interpreter translate what the knight who sat on his throne had said, and there was no reason for that knight to have used formal Latin in that moment. He also had tons of Normans at his court, and they had almost certainly learned Greek, so they could act as intermediaries. Bohemond probably played a similar role, even if Anna downplays this. And our last question comes from Lamar, uh, who's got a Green Bay Packers little sort of like a profile pick. I went to high school in Milwaukee, so you know. And I think they won the Super Bowl while I was living there in Wisconsin. I think so. I never really understood American football. Sorry. But, I, but go, Pat, go. Anyway, question is, Lamar asks, I was wondering your take on what the Uchmer states might be like politically, culturally, etc. if they had survived into the present day. I like this question. Obviously, this is all hypothetical, so I might be missing some factors here. The first big question is religion. If there were any sort of modern state that traced its origin back to the Ultramare, it would have to have a large Christian influence. And I think here, Lebanon, which is pretty evenly split between Christians and Muslims with Jews and Druze also present, would be what you could expect in terms of religious diversity. I think you could expect to have more Catholics in the region than modern Lebanon, with Maronites or something like Maronites as a Christian majority. Maronites are in communion with Catholics, so they would form a sort of Christian bloc in the region together. And then you'd likely have, as in Lebanon, an even distribution of Sunni and Shia Muslims. And Jews and Druze, of course, as sort of large minorities. Language is another big question. We'll get to it later on, but one of the big issues the Uchmer states will have is integration. The Franks will stay to some degree separate from local populations and the degree to which they assimilated is a big question we'll have to explore. That means that their dialect of Old French, which is what will come to dominate among Franks in the Outremer, remained limited to small pockets of Frankish elite. However, that could change at some point, and a state with more room for locals to participate in power provides incentives for locals to learn the language of the elites. Notice that because of the exclusionary nature of Norman rule in England, English was never supplanted. And that's another possibility. Arabic might once again become the dominant language of the region among everyone, perhaps with a heavy dose of Old French influence, like modern English has. If a dialect of Old French did survive, it likely wouldn't be entirely mutually intelligible with modern French, but you can look at some regional French dialects in northern France or the Channel Islands for an idea of what it might be like, languages like Norman or Picard, with a lot of Arabic influence, obviously. In terms of territory, I think the largest it could be is a somewhat larger Lebanon, stretching from Accra in modern Israel up to Antioch, modern Antakya in Turkey. Though I doubt they'd have control of Jerusalem. I think it's likely this would be a developing country. I don't see any reason for it to be more developed than modern Lebanon is today. 
The history would likely have been shaped by the same processes. Ottoman imperial rule at some point I think is completely inevitable, and then Franco-British colonialism. In terms of a name, actually in Lebanon there's a surname, uh, Frangie, uh, which just comes from the Arabic word for Frank, and I think probably that would be the name of this, uh, this state. It would probably be called something like uh, Pirangia or something like that. I think that would probably be a good name. All right, that's all the questions. We'll probably do another Q&A at some point in the future. So if you have any other questions, hold on to them and I'll let you know when, when I'm ready to do another one of these. Next time, I think we'll probably be focusing. I'm working on all the episodes that I mentioned in my last update. We'll probably be focusing on either the military capabilities of the Franks and the Turks or the social makeup of the crusading army in 1097 as they began to besiege Nicaea. I'm kind of leaning towards that option, actually. So I will see you all then. Or rather, you'll be hearing my voice then. Bye. Bye.